one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health. Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We talk to satirist Craig Brown about his new book about the royal family. We discuss the return of Boris Johnson to public life. With a certain amount of sadness. And in You Ask Us, we ask, is Corbynism forever? And now we're joined by satirist Craig Brown, who has a new book out called Mum Darling, 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret. Hello, welcome Hi. to New Statesman Podcast. We're going to start by talking about the book. The main thing I got from reading the book was that royal biographers are awful and often extremely oleaginous, weirdly in love with their subjects, and no matter how kind of banal their things that they're writing about are. But you've had to read a lot of them. Why? Why did you choose this as a subject? I don't know. I, that's a question I ask myself every day of the year that I wrote the book. They are a very odd lot. I mean, one of the oddest in a way is William Shawcross. He started off as sort of, you know, very good journalist, writing that book Sideshow about Cambodia and, you know, investigative. And then he did this terrible authorised biography of the Queen Mother, which is about kind of 900 pages, and did her letters, same length. And it was just about what colour hat she was wearing on her trip to Canada in 1953 and that kind of thing. And you do think that it does make people go mad, I think, the royal family. Did it make you go mad? Yes, it did, actually. But not not in the same way as him. I I got very frustrated. I was worried that she was too um, limited a character to devote so much attention to. Because one of the things I think is really interesting is that she starts off, and I, you kind of have to enjoy the bitchiness. I don't know. I know that there's all these yeah. stories about how incredibly rude she was, but you begin to see it as somebody who, I don't know if I felt if I had to go to that many awful society dinners where people that were sort of tinkling laughs talk to me about their pheasant shoot, I'd probably just start being really aggressively rude to people Yeah, too. there are lots of people like, you know, waiters who have to do the same and <laughs> true, <laughs> with, true. with less perks. So... Um, yeah, I, I'm. You know, I suppose it was awful, but that was what she was meant to do. I mean, she was. I think, by and large, she was at the official events. She was kind of okay, though. Matthew Paris, I put in the book, had one story where, when he was an MP, some village hall had gone to great pains to make coronation chicken, and she just looked at it and said that that looks like sick, which isn't really what the Queen would have said. <laughs> in a funny way, she was the kind of the reverse of the Queen, or the Queen with Tourette's. 
What was your kind of starting assumption about the place of the royal family in British life when you went into the book? And did that change? I have very, very few proper opinions in a sort of new statesman or a spectatorish way. And so I, I can kind of sort of live with them. I, I like the, just as as a humorist, really, I like the the sort of dud ones like Fergie. I'm not really interested in the, in the sort of Harry or William or the ones who kind of do the job or the Queen. I like the ones who go off the rails. So, and I think Princess Margaret was a kind of pioneer in that respect. I think one of the yeah the interesting things is, and you capture it well in the book, is is how they kind she sort of emits a force field that makes other people act in very weird and strange ways. Yes, I mean, I, I used a lot of diaries, and, and one of the unfortunate things in her life was that the people she often saw were people who then published diaries, like uh, Cecil Beaton, Lise Milne, Noel Coward Roy then Strong. Was a kind yeah. of brutal, well, Noel Coward was more on the side, but those three were, you know, incre- I mean, especially Cecil Beaton, unbelievably unpleasant about her, and yet they loved being with her. And also the kind of arty set around Kenneth Tynan, they would have these dinners and invite her, and then they'd all giggle about her after she left. And so she, in some ways she was a victim, but then she didn't have to mix with them anyway. Hmm. In terms of, sort of the broader theme of, of the book, of, of kind of the monarchy and not having strong opinions about it, I think from a historical perspective, it's easy to forget how weird it is that the monarchy enters 2017 in such a strong state in terms of its public standing, the respect people have yes. for it. How much do you think that is kind of tied to the health and continuing uh, reign of, of Elizabeth II? You know, how fragile yeah, do you think Yeah, it's very that? interesting. I mean, I have been thinking this year, I've become slightly monarchist this year because of Trump in a funny way, because you think, well, if you've got someone else who sort of personifies the nation, then the president doesn't have to, and you can just see him as he is. He doesn't have to sort of... Uh, do you see what I mean? Yeah. And so there's a nice, those two roles aren't joined together. And I can see that there is some... Some reason to have the sort of grandest person in the uh, the land not n- not being the kind of Trump person, but obviously that doesn't apply if you like whoever the president is. I suppose that's the same thing. I think I felt as well as that. Always describe myself as a really reluctant Republican, anyway. But I now I sort of now I think there are so few things that you can adopt as British in a sense of I like the idea of an identity like a citizenship based identity right rather yes. than something that you choose to to have and you kind of contribute to rather than something you're you're born with which I think is often but those identities are very limited and the queen is something that kind of everybody you know like the like the kids making the coronation chicken everyone can kind of buy into the, the monarchy right I mean it will be to go to your original question it will be odd when the queen dies because Hardly anyone alive will remember a time when she wasn't queen, uh, or at least she wasn't alive. And so I think I think that there'll be an emotional impact, even with people who've thought themselves entirely indifferent, or even against, you know, like when Stalin died, all the people in the gulags were in tears. I guess that if you look at around the time of um, Princess Diana's death, you know, when the monarchy was at really at sort of at the lowest ebb since maybe the Duke of Windsor or something, they kind of survived that and... William and Harry seem perfectly kind of reasonable, and they're rather good at sort of modernising things and being more relaxed. So I, I'd guess it, it'll go on. I obviously um, kind of I feel I'm sort of a Republican in the same way that I would like to redo my kitchen. I know it's not going to happen, <laughs> and so having strong opinions yes. about it kind of feels like a a waste of of my time, and also. If you do uh, have a president, you do need to find some way of making them not be your executive 
ruler when Theresa May does this whole I am the state it just looks incredibly naff whereas if your president is the head of the executive it clearly is a very powerful and potent political but I think that's also tied to the thing and you pick up on this in the book about the fact that Queen Elizabeth has spent a whole lifetime without saying anything of any interest to anybody I know it's an amazing achievement phenomenally disciplined (laughs) thing to do I think it's because she's not I mean Giles Brandreth wrote a brilliant book about Prince Philip and the Queen and he argues that the interesting one is Prince Philip, which I'm sure is true, and that she is just, she's basically not interested in other people. She likes her dogs. And so she always asks the same questions and she can kind of judge things. And, but also she, she probably doesn't have much of interest to say and that's one of the reasons she doesn't say it. And she's obviously courteous and everything, so she doesn't fall into... Princess Margaret didn't have much of interest to say, but she'd always just like saying the wrong thing. But if she'd been queen, I think, you know, we talk about the birth order kind of being cosmically being ordered. If she had been queen, I don't think we would now be in 2017 in the same position. No, I quite agree. I do have a... I mean, the books are not just a kind of biography. It's got a mixture of parodies and things. And I do have a kind of queen's speech as if given by... um, by Princess Margaret, and it's it's slightly more disastrous than the normal Queen's speech. Yeah, I like the um, the one about her getting married to Picasso. That's another yes. kind of strange. Well, I think that that was uh, one of my inspirations to the book because I um I came across his uh, letters and diaries of Roland Penrose, who's a big kind of art person in the fifties, and in them there's a lot about um, Picasso's obsession with Princess Margaret, and uh, even to the extent of designing wedding clothes for them and that sort of thing. I mean. Princess Margaret, when she later heard about it from Penrose, thought said it was the most disgusting thing she'd ever heard. But it would be, it would have been a kind of interesting wedding. Yeah, that would have been the kind of yeah the celebrity <laughs> wedding of, of, of the twentieth century. Um, just to talk about some other stuff at the time, I'm really interested about the fact that you uh, used to be a parliamentary sketch writer. Yeah. What what period of Parliament was that covering? It was a very good time, and I, I I did it for just the right amount of time, given that I'm not that interested in politics. I did it. It was 1987, 1988. So Mrs. Thatcher and Kinnock and the sort of decline of the SDP in that election and uh, David Owen then losing his deposit. And then I did all the party conferences. And so I sort of got the sort of taste for it. And and, and doing um, sketches of uh, during the election of one a day of doing Jerry Adams and then Ian Pacey and then Enoch Powell and then going over to Glasgow for Roy Jenkins. So I kind of got a whole lot of... It was like a kind of crash course, but... After 18 months, I thought, I've just about had enough. But was there a sense that politics is more ridiculous now? Because I wonder if that's just a kind of hindsight bias that we always think, you know... I mean, people complaining about, you know, there being pygmies in the House of Parliament in the 1945, we know, as well, and And Max Beerbohm has an essay, I suppose he was writing in kind of early 1900s, where he talks just about that, how everyone is always saying the current lot are pygmies. and, (laughs) And so I think it just does happen and obviously I mean you know it's hard to imagine that Theresa May in in a few years or John Major will be seen as these major figures of more colourful than the present lot but I can see that someone like Corbyn who maybe to us now seems a bit kind of drab other than in the enthusiasm he inspires I can see that he might be seen in in historical terms as more um, exciting than the people who follow him I mean I suppose if if Ed Miliband had followed Corbyn rather than the other way round, we'd be sort of slightly nostalgic for the personality of Corbyn or the near personality. 
Yeah, I mean, I think a really big part of the Corbin attraction is the kind of... I mean, I always used to feel a sort of sense of tension when watching Ed Miliband's interview because you felt like it was a man gingerly picking his way through a minefield. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. Corbin's just striding yes. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if yeah. he says something that upsets somebody... And that's yes. that's a change in our politics, I think. Yes, yes. Though Corbin's kind of changed his chin slightly from the early days, hasn't he? So, you know, he'd stand at the national anthem, all that kind of... He, do, he, he does the sort of basics... Mm-hmm. That's one of Stephen's you know, themes is about actually about underestimate you know, people who get, kind of get stuck in this 2015 Corbyn era criticism. Right? Yeah. Um, yes, and now under the election when he was you know going back to republicanism when he was asked about the uh, royal family he was saying well there's nothing about her in the manifesto or you know that so it was a political answer. Yeah. It's slightly surreal. Yeah, kind of it's a very nerdy historical point. But I realize there were more open and sort of vituperative Republicans in William Gladstone's last cabinet than there are in Labour's shadow yeah, cabinet yeah, now, yeah, 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 which yeah, I yeah. I just, I have no idea why that is, yes. or, you know, if it is... Was that under know, Queen Victoria or under Edward VIII? I think Queen Victoria is very unpopular mm. um, towards the... Well, no, actually, all the way through. There was a time when one of her sort of ladies-in-waiting got pre- Well, they thought she was pregnant. Queen Victoria thought she was pregnant. In fact, she had some disease where her stomach was swelling and she fired her and then the woman died and there were great kind of riots and things like that. And she was quite unpopular all the way through and, and eventually she was unpopular for not showing herself in public after Albert died and that kind of thing. That's one of the things I, I think is a constant strain of our relationship with the royal family is is whatever they're doing, it's sort of the wrong thing. So you get post-Diana, you mentioned yeah, before, yeah. and it's kind of come out and emote. But then at the same time, you kind of then the Daily Mail will kind of turn around and go, stop, you know, stop turning this into a celebrity circus, mom. Yeah, but also you have, you know, a book in praise of Camilla and then the next week it'll be a book in praise of Diana and, and you're meant to take both or uh, or knocking both of them or something. But I think that's just kind of normal rough and tumble, isn't it? Yeah. Um. One final question, which is about uh, kind, of, kind of coming back to all some of the things we talked about. You write excellent parodies in Private Eye, and you write a lot of other satire as well. Are we have we going to pass peak satire? Well, this is probably another question that's been asked all the way through the twentieth and twenty first centuries. But politicians are now so ready to satirise themselves. You know, they love being yeah, yeah. on Saturday Night Live. They love kind of participating in that. You know. I know, and if you if you're sort of say David Miller or you know all these people who've had scandals, the, the way towards rehabilitation is to go yeah. on. Have I got news for you? And to show you, you can take a laugh against yourself and all that kind of thing. I mean, with Trump, obviously, he's kind of uh, beyond a joke. I, um, I mean, the, I thought the the most brilliant ones were the. I don't know if you've seen Peter Serafinovich's. Um, oh, the sassy Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're pretty clever, but then. Now that Trump is so scary, there's nothing you can do. But I, I've I've never believed that um, satire can change anything. So as long as you don't believe that, then you're not depressed. That's probably a very good <laughs> note to end on. Thank you very much. The book is Mum, Darling, and that was Craig Brown. So with the inevitability of an unloved season... Boris Johnson. Yeah. Who will not... I, this edict has come down from the very top. I say the very top. I mean, of course, our beloved editor, Jason Cowley, that we don't call him Boris in the New Statesman. He's not Boris. His name is Boris Johnson. He's a real human being. He is inexplicably Foreign Secretary, so we don't chumify him, which I'm really on board with having earlier this year argued against the chumification of Jacob Rees-Mogg. I have many thoughts, but I'm not sure, any, I was going to say, not that many of them printable, but I'm not sure whether or not any of them are going to fall foul of the Apple explicit rating about, about Boris Johnson. Why don't you talk about the politics of it, and then I can just have a bit of a rant about how I don't like him personally. So Boris Johnson has re-entered, in case you haven't seen, and if you haven't, 
Oh, you so lucky. We envy um, you. Has re-entered the political debate with a 4,200-word-long piece about his vision for how Brexit can work. And in so doing, he ha- he's done three things. The first is he's kind of gone, oh, no, we can't have substantial payments to the EU after we leave. He hasn't ruled out with the transition, but if you don't have substantial payments, you have a significantly worse standard of access uh, to the single market than the one we have now. So that does mean a fairly big economic shock at some point. The second is, uh, because it's obviously a leadership bid, and the way you can tell that is, and he put it on his Facebook profile in order to get round Telegraph. Telegraph's paywall. Well, can I just um, pause a bit there? Because I think one of the really interesting and unnoticed things, and actually because no one in the media wants to touch it, is about the circle of Boris that happens in the media, which I think is a really interesting point. So Spectator edited a Fraser Nelson wrote a piece on Friday, which said, come on, Boris, where are you? We'd all love to hear from you. He's also a Telegraph columnist, um, Fraser Nelson as well. Then on Saturday, let me get this right. The extracts then came out on yeah that Friday night because it was in Saturday's paper and it was given two news pages as well this this sort of absolutely epic work now Simon and they did a full kind of comment roll rollout so Tim Stanley was just like you know cometh the hour cometh the man Someone Charles else. Moore a Telegraph and Spectator columnist said what a legend he's the one for me and the leader was just like you know hail Caesar and then Dominic Cummings of Vote Leave their chief strategist who was married to Spectator Deputy Editor Mary Wakefield then followed up with a I think I'm going to say 37 tweet thread he's learned how to thread his tweets which is one of the best things that's happened in British politics this year that had kind of a lot of the usual kind of coming themes about the uselessness of Whitehall the fact that you know Brexit could have been brilliant but is a kind of currently a shambles because it's being left to terrible people and actually one of the things that you've talked about before on the podcast which is the idea that triggering article 50 was a terrible mistake which to be fair to Dominic Cummings he did say before the referendum um, and then there was this interesting kind of footsie played by Michael Gove about whether or not he supported these these comments or, or not and again he's a, a sort of long time kind of I was I don't really describe the relationship between him and Dominic Cummings. I'm not really sure how can friends probably yeah, friends slash political allies. He's you know he's like there's always a weird clannishness about uh, political tendencies because they spend so long together. I think the big difference, and this may just be um, nostalgia being 2020. You know when when under Ed you'd have like a big intervention of like oh. And you, I think, voted Ed Balls 1, Ed Miliband 2. And you, and you, and you. And you wrote, well, this is an organised thing. People wouldn't go like, oh, you know, that's not true. That's not fair. They'd be like, yep, that is what is going on. The weird gaslighting of going, oh, you know, just a just a coincidence. But I've realised... Yeah, it was not in any way a, co- a coincidence, right? The, the, the Telegraph would clearly have been, you know, it, Boris had a 250,000 man a year contract with them. Yeah. He wrote one piece for them, I think, after he became Foreign Secretary even. And then everyone went, uh, you can't do this, this is crazy. Yeah. But so the other kind of thing, obviously, he's done is it has reopened the running sore of the next Tory leadership election. And it means that this big speech in Florence, which our listeners will have heard, but we don't know about yet, will kind of mainly be assessed in a kind of, you know, can the Tory party get through it? And of course, it all eats away at the time of the Article 50 process. But the thing I realised this week is I finally realised what Boris Johnson reminds me of. Go on. An innocent smoothie, right? And I realised this reading his exclusive interview in The Guardian, right, where he kind of was just like, oh, you know... A well, wide-ranging interview, well, I well, well, I was doing, a, you know, as Cicero, I was sitting on my hill and some inveterate jalop, and I was like, oh, my God, it's like they're kind of, hi there, I'm really nice, I'm not a big corporate juice company at all, don't you love me, what a cheeky chappy I am. 
Um, and that's basically what the Boris Johnson thing. It's like, you know, insert Boris? classical reference. Yes, it's know, a bit kind big, of... Big adjective. As Catullus would have said. Yeah, by the way, I'm the architect of the biggest victory the right has had in British politics basically ever. K thanks, bye. But I think the other way he's like innocent smoothies, right? Is kind of everyone... Okay, yes, people still drink them in their droves, right? He's a bit too sugary. But yeah, but also everyone's just a bit tired of that kind of like, you know... Hey, why not knit a little hat for your innocent smoothie bottle? Yeah, and, and, no. and, and, you know, kind of all of that stuff when, you know, you, like, pick up a cinema ticket and says on the back, please don't throw me on the floor. You know, everyone has kind of started to yeah, find you're not that my a friend. bit grating. <laughs> yeah. And I think the interesting thing is the kind of, like, slightly mechanistic, you know, like, insert classical reference here, firm right-wing opinion here. Cripes, reference to P.G. Woodhouse book here. Yeah has started to irritate everyone. It certainly... Started to irritate me. It's And it's irritated a great number of Conservative MPs as well, which obviously is his bigger problem. That's in. what I'm, I think is kind of fascinating, is, uh, is to try and work out what he thought the end game of that process was. Because there was then another Telegraph story that said, you know, if I don't get my way on this, I'll quit by the weekend. And then friends of Boris said this was nonsense. They slightly wrote back on that headline. But the trouble was that having been so seen, you know, having the Telegraph seen so much as your kind of propaganda arm in the initial intervention, no one was really going to buy the idea that they'd just gone and madly freestyled this opinion themselves. But he, at the moment, he seems to have wound his neck back in slightly. But do you think he thought it would end up with him as Prime Minister by the end of the week? This is the thing that I can't quite work out. So I think it's a combination of things. So he, oh, he also uh, revived the 350 million oh. round. Right. So is that is that genius or is that actually, as I think, a terrible idea? And that, that was a great lie to win the campaign. But... Do you really want to... Who is going to... You know, it's it's not like repeating that figure now is actually helping you because you're kind of just making people think that the EU is a terrible bastard that's taking all our money. Like, you, you've won that argument, really. I mean, also, in terms of... So the, the long-term threat to Brexit is not that it won't happen. It's that no one is changing their minds whether they voted to leave or to remain. And then demographically... At some point, you just, you know, just just through the passage of time, Britain becomes a majority Remain country. So if you want to... Unless people get more levy as they get older. But the leave vote is so much about cultural things like support for the death penalty or... Interestingly, in the late in a survey by Tim Bale out today, whether or not you think the gollywog doll is racist, it is just about lots of other things. Where I think the age thing actually is just a bit of a proxy for the 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 values. So what you really need to do if you want Brexit to be a long-term success, particularly because we now know that people who voted Remain and Leave have completely different views of how the economy is doing, is not to have a situation when the next recession happens, which we're about due and we probably would be due even if the pound hadn't done what it did after the Brexit vote. When that happens, you do kind of need to have a situation in which it doesn't just bed in in the, cent- in the minds of 48% of people and this is a bad idea and it's a shame and we did it. But I think the thing with the 350 million is I just think it's a bit of a distraction. I just don't think it moves any votes now anymore. Like, well, it I did also its think job, if, you, if, you, if, you, if, if Yeah, if you're Boris Johnson and actually really the constituency you most need to talk to is Tory backbenchers, then getting into, yeah, you know, always fight against the perception that people have of you. And the worry about those Tory backbenchers have about putting him through to the final round is he's chaotic, he's unpredictable. We don't, you know, we just don't know what he's going to do. And getting into a row with the head of the UK Statistics Authority is not helping the perception you're underprepared and a bit irrational, right? That's, if he was, you know, the, the case he needs to prove is that he's 
competent and he will make the you know he will win an election for the Tory party. But I think the thing about the 350 million is the reason why this is a useful kind of starting point to explain why it happened is Boris Johnson really doesn't like to be disliked by basically anyone, right? He finds even the fact that like AC Grayling and Jolly on Morm are angry about the 350 million is an active sort of like blow against him, right? That's why he can't leave it alone. So that's... But that's because I guess he doesn't have the same outsiderishness driving him that you've seen lots of the other senior Brexiteers. You know, somebody like maybe Michael Gove is probably a bit happier, or certainly you know, if you go to Nigel Farage or Douglas Carswell, friend of the podcast, no, Douglas Carswell, then, you know, those people have predicated their entire political career on that there is an establishment that they're not part of. Whereas until he went out and came out for leap, you know, Boris Johnson was absolutely king. You know, he was the scholarship boy, like he was the, you know, the golden child, right? He wasn't the kind of bullied kid in the corner of the class who hates all the people who, like, hates all the jocks, right? Yeah, no, that that, that is, is part, part of, of the dynamic the other is that because he likes to be liked and he he tends to kind of gravitate towards sort of strong opinions bear in mind the strong opinion in the foreign office is that when Theresa May did her first reshuffle when she was very in that very powerful position then she crippled them because she took away international trade took that into the department of international trade spent a lot of time coming up with that name and took away responsibility for exiting the European Union to DEXU, a.k.a. the Department for Exiting the European Union, which there are a lot of people at senior level in the Foreign Office who feel very keenly that the big foreign policy challenge, mm. the biggest since, since you know, 1945, is not under their direct control. And so it was partly, I, I think, a result of those kind of departmental feeling of like, oh, I'm weak, my empire has been pared back, I need to assert myself. And then he also was feeling cut out of the conversations about the Florence speech so it was on his part a bid to reinsert himself into reinsert the conversation. himself into the conversation um, because he's he certainly thinks, done that yeah and he, he has sort of succeeded on those grounds but I think that's interesting that you know that you saw Jacob Rees-Mogg writing sort of his vision for the future over the summer and, you know Boris now offered his vision for the future but the counterpoint to that is that you have seen more of the emergence of Amber Rudd was then out on the Mar program and was asked, you know, what did she had she read Boris's Boris Johnson's piece? And she said, you know, no, I actually had quite a lot on on Friday. What with the terror attack and all. And then you had Ruth Davidson, who did a tweet, you know, long-term Boris foe, Scottish Tory leader Ruth Davidson, doing a tweet saying, you know, at the time when terror alert is heightened, we should all I thought should be on service. So you are already beginning to see the kind of key players come out, and I would probably put David Davis in that as well. Notably absent from all of this is um, P. Ham, who has got the world's nightmarish most budget, I think, currently in the offing, right? I just feel like that is a big, big under sort of explored landmine that lies ahead. Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the fun game is when was the last successful Conservative budget? actually have to go back to the coalition i'm not doing that in a kind of macro i'm you know like when was the last conservative budget which didn't have a bit fall off or you know like tax credits or like the pre-referendum one that clearly did not take into account the yeah the problems yeah, of that so tax credits the ni raise yeah so so you know there, there has been a long long run of of fiscal events being fairly disastrous for the government they don't have a majority, yeah, they technically have a majority for kind of confidence and supply issues, but the chances of things going wrong are quite high. And he also now does have quite large commitments. So he's got this 
increasing the pay cap although i don't really understand what they're thinking of with the pay cap increase because they've decided to have like the we're going to end the freeze but we're not going to end it below inflation so it's just like so you've got the kind of political pain of kind of selling the pass on your argument about fiscal restraint but you don't really get the the everyone's still getting a pay cut it's still a pay cut and also there is an idea i have no idea how much uh truth there is in this but i've certainly heard it from people in the treasury and it's reached other newspapers as well that there will be some kind of action on tuition fees now the weird thing is is a but that's again exactly the same thing, isn't it? The, all the things that they're talking about are not as big, bold, an offer as Labour have got that you can, you know, I always say this, you know, put on a pledge card. But the trouble is that then you end up essentially making a huge financial commitment that still looks like pretty weak source compared to something that someone else is offering. I think the thing is, at least with the pay cap stuff, right, there is a group of voters who did vote Tory in 2015, who voted Labour in 2017, who you can see how they are winnable with some form of, of, of pay policy. The slight weirdness is that. The tuition fee policy Labour had was very popular among students and then people who'd immediately graduated and hadn't really started to pay it back. And there, But the Conservative big electoral problem were voters in their 30s, 40s and, and 50s. Which is really fascinating that because of the whole Boris gate, actually Syed Javid's housing reforms are not getting any attention at all. And I'll tell you the other thing that's not getting any attention, I've written about in the mag this week, is the accelerated rollout of universal credit, which starts in October. And because that then wraps housing benefit into it as well, and because it's paid directly to tenants rather than landlords, it's causing all kinds of problems with rent arrears. Yeah. And, and there are going to be a lot of stories in around Christmas of people who have done the right thing who are nonetheless being made homeless by And I think that's credit. the thing people don't understand is that 40% of people claiming universal credit are in work, right? So you cannot paint this as just being kind of scroungers who are, you know, therefore we shouldn't have, quote, quote unquote, ordinary hardworking families are going to be affected by this. So it looks like it's going to be a fun lead into a Conservative Party conference. Next week, we will be giving you all the highlights from Labour Party conference, though, which we're attending. I'm looking forward to my trip to the seaside. I don't know about you, Stephen. Brighton's not a proper seaside. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And welcome to a segment we like to call... You Ask Us. Oh, boo hiss. This week, we've been dwelling on Labour's NEC meeting, which happened on Tuesday, in which a raft of rule changes. The kind of big message that came out of it was power to the members. So we'll see how much of that is carried through to party conference. But was there anything in there that surprised you? No, because the leaders' office has been talking for a while about how they're going to get this wrong. I think it's more interesting as a kind of moment to take stock of where the various parts of the Labour Party are. So in case you haven't been following, the the main things are the increase in the number of places on the NEC elected by party members and an increase in the number of places on the NEC elected by trade unions with the other sort of three stakeholders in the Labour Party all losing out. Affiliated societies, Labour members of Parliament and councillors. 
So you are effectively getting more swing votes on the NEC, although currently the swing is very heavily towards Jeremy Corbyn and Corbynism. Yeah, and and then the other thing is lowering the threshold to ten percent, which is to which means twenty eight uh, if there are still MEPs knocking around, and it's twenty six if there aren't. Both of which are well within the reach of a successor on the left of the Labour Party. Now, I think the, the reasons why it is interesting isn't it is a good example of the fact that leaders' office has got a lot better recently at working out what it wants and what the most effective way to buy it from one of the swing voters were. This is not the only reason why they failed to get any of their people selected in by-elections in 2015-17, and why they did actually quite badly in the vacant seat selections in 2017. But they did all too often have this thing of like, well, we want X, and we're just going to assert them we want X, and then this will somehow happen. But basically, in order to run the Labour Party successfully, you need to co-opt another bit of it. And how you do it depends on what you're co-opting it on on any given moment. Okay, so this leads us to the question that we were specifically asked, which is, do these changes empowering the members more? Does this mean assured succession of Corbynism forever you know has is that a permanent shift in in the Labour Party to the left no fun historical fact not since Harold Wilson has the leader after them been selected using the same rules as they got selected as leader uh, with actually that's not quite true because Michael Foote was selected with the same rules as Jim Callaghan but they had already been changed you know and and were you know if anyone writes in about that I think you should probably write back to them and tell them to get out more but in 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 any case and in each in each example the faction of the Labour Party doing it sat there being like haha one day my son all this will be yours and it turned out it wasn't right the Collins Review I of course the hilarious thing about the Collins Review is it was an immense success right it brought a lot of people into the Labour Party, it elected someone who would not have been elected by the Labour establishment, and it led to Labour's best get night in terms of seat gains uh, since 1997, all of which were things that uh, the Blairites who advocated for it wanted. It just didn't quite happen with the, <laughs> the, the candidate the that they wanted, than, yeah. than they expected. But, you know, the Collins Review was a success. Now there's a series of reforms kind of built well, no, it's built around an ideological analysis of what went wrong with the governments of Wilson, Callaghan and Blair. I members did not have a, a big enough voice and a factional analysis about what is in the interests of Corbynism, which is for the members to vote more. Now, obviously, in the short term, right, if there is an if there is a leadership election before 2022, that is very true, right? The, the favourite will be someone who at least has the appearance of having the Corbynite imprimatur, although obviously you then get into a weird philosophical argument about how many atoms of a Corbynite are there in Angela Rayner, you know, how much of a Corbynite is Emily Thornbury, etc, etc. But, as people should know already, party memberships are incredibly changeable things, right? It is hugely possible to imagine a situation where Labour wins the next election and against a backdrop of economic chaos and a terrible uh, inheritance from the government that comes in. You have you know, immense pressures on productivity, wages, huge levels of discontent. Mm-hmm. The government can't do very much. And then and Jeremy then su- Corbyn just bins the turkey and, and then suddenly, the tide turns against him. And then suddenly, yeah, the, the membership representatives are all like, diehard pro-Europeans who are going, the reason why there's all this chaos isn't we're not in the single market. When are you going to take us back into the single market? Or, you know, some issue that we don't even know about takes the country and the party by storm. I think the more significant reason why I think Corbynism is here for a while is 
the tactical ineptitude that it has exposed in some Corbynites. Um, you mean some anti-Corbynites? Some, sorry, some Corbyn sceptics, yes. Like, um, this reform was going to pass. Like, actually, the 15% threshold died the second that MPs failed to use it to keep Corbyn off the ballot in June 2015 or whenever it was. It's like, it's not in, it's not even why is this a hill you want to die on. It's not a hill. It's literally a hole in the ground to die on. It's like the least defensible spot to go, oh, no, these reforms are a power grab. And it once again kind of adds to the slight gratingness between members and Corbyn sceptics, which is actually the biggest problem for Corbyn sceptics is their own inability to think about what went wrong. But yeah, I also think it's just useful to take the long perspective, right, and just say that 20 years ago, Tony Blair won a huge majority for his vision of the Labour Party. 20 years before that, you know, you're looking at kind of, well, coming out of the era of 20 plus years ago, coming out of the era of Michael Foote, right? It's just anybody who thinks that their faction has achieved such hegemony that it will never be challenged is taking a very weirdly ahistorical view of Labour. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. We are recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Why not check out our arts, books, and other forms of culture podcast, The Back Half, hosted by Kate Mossman and Tom Gatti. You can find it on iTunes, Acast, or just you know, have a wee Google, see what you find. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.